You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the December 17th Friday reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Mary Ann. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Colorado's Mental Health System is Broken by Jennifer Brown of the Colorado Sun. Blindsided, parents and staff dismayed at APS plan to close Sable Elementary by Karina Julig. Colorado seeks to bolster fentanyl fight amid overdose crisis by the Associated Press. And promise landed. Churches move past governments in offering temporary homes to those who don't have one. By Kara Mason and Karina Julig. Colorado's mental health system is broken. An audit could reveal why and what to do about it. By Jennifer Brown of the Colorado Sun. Denver. As state policymakers and media outlets scrutinize Colorado's mental health system, the head of a trade group representing 17 community mental health centers is calling for an audit. The CEO of the Colorado Behavioral Health Care Council, which advocates for the community clinics across the state, wants an audit not just of those 17 centers, but the entire behavioral health system. We need to make the system much more accessible, and we need to break down some of these barriers, Doyle Forrestal said. Her request comes as community health centers, the safety net system for those with Medicaid or without insurance, are at the heart of an intense conversation about Colorado's broken mental health system. They were the subject of an in-depth Colorado News collaborative report that revealed the centers, which receive $437 million in tax dollars per year, are treating thousands fewer patients now than before the pandemic began, and that some people in dire need of care are slipping through the cracks. And the centers were the subject of a subsequent letter to Governor Jared Polis from statewide mental health advocates that asked the governor to take action to address serious problems, including a lack of transparency and the center's failures to serve Coloradans with the greatest needs. The letter, signed by Mental Health Colorado President Vincent Achitti and National Health Alliance on Mental Illness Colorado Executive Director Ray Merenstein, among others, called for an overhaul of the community mental health centers. For starters, Colorado should create more transparency and accountability regarding the center's spending, including by requiring them to disclose to the state each time a client has to wait more than five days for an initial appointment, the advocates wrote. They also want the governor to create a standing group of policy and finance experts. They made a related and pointed request. 
no more than one representative from the community mental health centers allowed on the panel. The state should be bold and truly transformational in its efforts, they wrote. This means standing up to powerful trade associations and ending a long-standing sense of entitlement. Two days after that letter, Forrestal sent her own letter to the governor asking for an audit. What, audit. what auditors would find if they looked into community mental health centers, Forrestal said, is a system filled with redundant paperwork. So many reports and documents to justify public spending that time spent on actual program improvements suffers. The audit scope should extend to hospital systems, insurance companies, mental health therapists, and psychiatrists in private practice and beyond. The entire system needs review, from figuring out why medical offices and hospitals have been slow to incorporate mental health care, to why therapists in private practice often don't take insurance, she said. The scrutiny comes as more Coloradans than ever are seeking mental health services. We have a bunch of people who, prior to the pandemic, were starting to feel comfortable and wanting to reach out for services, Forrestal said in an interview. Now it's blown the doors off. People want access to care. They don't know where to go. You have struggling family members that need help and resources, and we just don't have the people to provide that care. Meanwhile, there's a third letter. A group representing mental health providers in private practice wrote its own letter, addressed to the legislature's Joint Budget Committee, calling the current structure biased in favor of the community, mel excuse me, the community mental health clinics and against those in private practice. The state Medicaid department and the community mental health centers are a clique that excludes independent providers from representation and influence over policy, including a recent 2% increase in staff wages that did not help private providers, said the group, called Combine. The battle waged in letters comes as a legislative task force gets closer to announcing how it will recommend spending $450 million in federal coronavirus aid tagged for Colorado's mental health system. At the same time, Polis's office is building a new behavioral uh, health administration, which will coordinate mental health care and substance abuse treatment at one state agency, agency instead of the current system, which includes 75 programs at three state agencies. The reimbursement rates the state Medicaid department pays to individual clinicians in private practice are far lower than those paid to mental health centers. Centers, however, say they need the higher reimbursement rates than therapists in private practice in order to cover the costs of operating 24-7 crisis services, case management, and community education courses. The statewide discussion on reform comes as Colorado is suffering from a mental health workforce crisis with 1,092 job vacancies among the 17 regional mental health centers. Blindsided. 
Parents and staff dismayed at APS plan to close Sable Elementary School by Karina Julig. Aurora. Aurora Public Schools has announced plans to close Sable Elementary School as part of its Blueprint APS project, causing frustration among community members and families who say the decision came as a shock. Blueprint APS is the district's multi-year plan for managing its school buildings in response to changing enrollment trends. As a part of the plan, some schools with low enrollment will be closed and seven campuses will be turned into specialized magnet schools that students located anywhere in the district can apply to attend. The plan has multiple phases and has been underway for several years. It divides the district into seven geographic regions, and in October, the district said it would soon be making building recommendations for Regions 1 and 5. An initial document released in 2019 identified Crawford Elementary, Paris Elementary, Park Lane Elementary, and North Middle School as Region 1 schools that were under consideration for being closed or repurposed. Last week, however, the district's announcement that it would be recommending Paris and Sable Elementary for closures took Sable community members by surprise. At a board meeting uh, Tuesday night, dozens of Sable families and employees arrived to protest the change, wearing the school's purple colors and holding signs. The subject was not on the agenda for the meeting, but the board heard over an hour of public comment from parents, teachers, and students who urged the district to reconsider. While teachers, excuse me, several teachers the Sentinel spoke to said they felt like the district had not been transparent when making the decision. The only way to describe it is that we were blindsided, said Leslie Burton, a Sable employee. Parents of Sable students expressed frustration that the district would close their school, would close, excuse me, parents of Sable students expressed frustration that the district would close a school their children loved. It's a good school, said Berenice Suastegi. I don't know why they want to close it. Suastegi has several children who currently attend Sable, as well as a sixth grader who graduated last year. She said she's concerned about how they would adjust if moved to a different school. Several speakers made note of the school's after-school program in partnership with the city of Aurora and its newly created classroom for students with autism. Alex Mayalka, a Sable paraprofessional who works in the new classroom, said the students have improved significantly since being placed in the new class and worries about their continued educational development if it goes away. A letter from Superintendent Rico Munn to Sable families announcing the decision said that Sable would need significant building upgrades to continue to serve students and that neighboring Altura and Park Lane elementaries have enough capacity to serve the surrounding area 
due to declining enrollment. The decision will go before the Board of Education for a vote at its February meeting. If approved, Sable and Paris will close in June 2023, allowing the current 4th and 5th grade students to complete their elementary education at those schools. Decisions about where younger current Sable students will be rezoned will take place after the February vote and be announced in the fall of 2022. Our current structure of operating low-enrollment buildings and underutilizing buildings does not allow APS to maximize its resources to serve students and families, Munn said in the letter. Please know that these recommendations are extremely difficult to make. However, our priority remains on how to best serve our community while planning for the future. Region 1 is where the district's health specialization is located. APS plans to build a magnet school focusing on health on the campus of North Middle School that includes space for a technical high school program. That will also go to a vote in February. At the meeting, Board President Debbie Gerken thanked attendees for sharing their concerns. These are hard, emotional, gut-wrenching choices that are ahead of all of us, she said. Chance of Save Sable broke out after she spoke. Munn told the Sentinel that the initial list of schools under consideration should only have been considered a draft and not a guarantee that certain buildings were safe from closure. The language of it, we thought, made that clear, but we're certainly hearing from staff and families that that's not how they read it, he said. Now that the district has recommended Sable for closure, it will start the process of determining how the building will be used in the future. He acknowledged that school closures are always difficult, but that they are necessary for APS's future. Any decision is going to be painful, and it's going to impact our families, he said. Part of this recommendation, when you look at the entire regional plan, is how do we minimize those impacts? The district will have a series of virtual information sessions in January to further discuss the planned closures. Colorado seeks to bolster fentanyl fight amid overdose crisis by the Associated Press. Denver. Colorado officials on Thursday announced legislation that would boost law enforcement resources to fight the distribution of fentanyl, part of efforts to stem an opioid crisis that has the state on track to surpass last year's record for the largest number of overdose deaths in a single year. The proposed law, which will be introduced during the 2022 legislative session, aims to disrupt the drug supply chains, dismantle drug networks, increase public awareness of fentanyl risks, and increase the ability to identify fentanyl production during distribution, Republican State Senator Kevin Praola said. The measure was announced at a news conference in which State Attorney General Phil Weiser 
lawmakers from both parties, and law enforcement officials called for increased public awareness about fentanyl, additional law enforcement investigative resources, and stronger legal penalties for the drug's distribution. We are in the greatest overdose crisis in our nation's history, Democratic State Senator Brittany Pedersen said, noting that those dying are not only people with long-standing substance abuse problems. Last year, 1,477 people in Colorado died from drug overdoses, mostly opioids, according to data from the State Health Department. Denver City Attorney Kristen Brownson told the City Council Monday that current estimates have Colorado surpassing 1,800 fatal overdoses this year, Colorado Politics reported. The trajectory of overdoses in the state has been one way, with Weiser using the example of El Paso County, which had four overdoses in 2016 and is on track to have more than 100 fentanyl-related overdoses this year. Nationwide, more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses from May 2020 to April 2021, a new milestone that experts tie to the COVID-19 pandemic and the growing prevalence of fentanyl in the illicit drug supply. Fentanyl is a highly lethal opioid that five years ago surpassed heroin as the type of drug involved in most overdose deaths. Weiser said the epidemic is 25 years in the making, beginning with prescription painkillers and now being replaced by illegal fentanyl. Those deadly pills are marketed to look like they're the old prescription pills, but they're not, he said. Tammy Gottsagen, a mother whose son Braden Burks died in 2019 from an accidental fentanyl overdose, spoke about a popular straight-A student who bought two pills from an acquaintance, expecting them to be some kind of painkiller. After taking one of the pills, her son died. Braden and I talked about the dangers. I used the analogy of playing Russian roulette, Gottsagen said. Brady even promised me that I had nothing to worry about. Of course, I didn't take that at face value, but the problem was Brady believed it. Kids think they're invincible. District Attorney Michael Doherty, whose district includes Boulder County, said the state needs more resources for substance abuse treatment, noting that Colorado ranks at the bottom 10 states for treatment availability. He also called for more law enforcement resources and stiffer state penalties for people selling deadly drugs. If you agree with me that addiction is a public health crisis, then we should go hard after the people who are preying on those in crisis, Doherty said. Gottsagen called Colorado's laws antiquated for prosecuting fentanyl distribution adding that the man who sold her son the pills is currently serving time in a federal prison because the state doesn't have a law to accommodate the crime. Weiser said officials have an opportunity to reevaluate penalties for drug distribution 
suggesting that maybe a felony charge would be appropriate. The Colorado State Legislature's 2022 session begins on January 12th. Promise landed. Churches move past governments in offering temporary homes to those who don't have one. By Kara Mason and Karina Julig. Thomas Limes says the shed-side, shed-sized pallet shelter in an Aurora parking lot he now calls home is a godsend. It's not far from where Limes, 62, grew up near Del Mar Park. He graduated from Hinckley High School and delivered the Sentinel as a kid. Born in Aurora, he went to college on a scholarship to play golf, then again for a human services degree in his 50s. He's also a recovering drug addict who now aspires to help people with similar experiences as his own. He's homeless, and the pallet shelter has provided a path forward. It's a lot better than sleeping in a tent, he said on a chilly November morning. You ever slept in a refrigerator? It's like that. Limes has slept in a lot of places since becoming homeless, but the 64-square-foot pallet shelter, one of 30 the city of Aurora purchased earlier this year, has helped him maintain a job and start thinking about what's next. I'm grateful, Limes said this week, stepping off a bus on his way back to the shelter for the night from his day labor job. He's been in the pallet shelter for about a month now. The heater just kicks ass, and it gets so hot you have to turn it down. Limes is one of a growing number of Aurora residents who have no permanent home. As of June, there were an estimated 480 homeless Aurorans in a city with no permanent shelter, though some homeless homelessness advocates believe that to be a significant undercount. Aurora has struggled to present a clear vision of how to respond to the problem, and in recent months, city lawmakers have clashed over even relatively basic issues, such as what types of emergency shelter to provide. The issue of how to handle people living on the street or in encampments is particularly charged. Mayor Mike Kaufman failed to pass his controversial urban camping ban proposal this summer, but vows to bring it back in the new year with a friendlier city council. Amid the political deadlock, churches and faith communities have stepped in. They're increasingly involved in efforts to help people like Limes. Their goal is to decrease homelessness and increase access to affordable housing. It's part of a burgeoning national movement referred to some supporters as Yes in God's Backyard, a play on the not-in-my-backyard attitude of groups seeking to block development on new housing. Churches and other faith communities have long undergirded soup kitchens and other homeless outreach programs. These efforts can make a significant difference, especially in places where faith groups provide some of the only sources of community support. But the new shift points to a desire to halt homelessness at its source, keep people housed, or find ways to get them back into housing quickly. 
Throughout the Denver Metroplex, faith communities are now participating in or spearheading the creation of transitional housing projects, affordable housing communities, safe parking, and other initiatives designed to curb the region's homelessness crisis. The faith-based community has been very open to these type of options for sure, said Jessica Prosser, director of Aurora's Housing and Community Services Department. And that is the hope, to connect with with a faith-based provider. Advocates say faith communities are natural partners in this work. People of all faiths have a calling to care for and protect the most marginalized members of our community, said Cole Chandler, executive director of the Colorado Village Collaborative. At this particular moment in our city and our country, homelessness is a major issue that's becoming larger by the day. You see people of faith following their faith practices and rising to meet the occasion. Likewise, Cheryl Baker Hawk, co-founder of the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative, said that homeless advocates and faith groups have similar missions to help others. Baker Hawk founded the initiative in 2019 with Rochelle Brogan and incorporated as a nonprofit in 2020. The initiative works with local organizations all faith communities so far, to give people who are homeless and living in their cars a safe place to park overnight while it works to connect them with social services and help people find a place to live. There are no religious requirements for people who park in the lots. Churches make particularly good partners because they have parking lots that typically aren't being used overnight, Baker Hawk said. There's also a built-in pool of volunteers. It's a really important part of the program, the community of support that the host provides, she said. The initiative receives about a handful of requests for help each day from across the metro area and sometimes further afield, Baker Hawk said, and the number of people living in their cars increased during the pandemic. Over the past year, about 10% of people who requested assistance were in Aurora. The CSPI was able to open its first location in Aurora over the summer in partnership with Restoration Christian Fellowship. A permit is required to park in each lot. Applicants must apply through the initiative's website at colosafeparking.org. In the time since it's opened, over half of the people who have stayed in the Aurora lot have left to go to some kind of permanent housing, Baker Hawk said. Advocates often say that stable housing is key to getting people back up on their feet. That was true for Limes, who, through the Salvation Army, was able to get his driver's license, social security card, a mailing address, and a reliable place to stay, allowing him to find temporary work. He'd like to continue on to work with the other people experiencing homelessness, he said. I think my path is being laid down in front of me over this last year. 
I believe in the guy upstairs, and he and I got a direct line, Lime said. And sometimes I get put in weird situations and different avenues, but I see what's happening with this one. Limes, like others, said the need for services is significant in Aurora. He waited weeks for a bed to become open at the Salvation Army in North Aurora. Baker Hawk hopes to open more parking lots in Aurora and the surrounding area in the near future. It eventually wants to have a safe parking lot in all seven counties in the metro area. The crisis has not come out of nowhere, she said. The number one reason people lose their housing and are living in their cars, they tell us, is the cost of housing, she said. They just can't find something affordable. The cost of housing in Colorado has ticked steadily upwards, unabated by the pandemic. According to the Colorado Association of Realtors, the median sale price of a single-family home in the state was $532,800 in November, an 18.5% increase from the same time last year. Apartment List reports that the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Aurora has reached a high of $1,556. The squeeze makes it increasingly difficult for low-income residents to make ends meet, even if they're working full-time or more than full-time jobs. Faith groups are taking note of that fact, too. The safe parking lot is the first step in Restoration Christian Fellowship's long-term plan to build a so-called affordable housing village on a 12-acre piece of land it owns adjacent to its worship space on East 6th Avenue. Serving the homeless was a passion of the church's founding pastor, Felix Gilbert, who died unexpectedly this April at age 61, just weeks before the safe parking lot opened. Pastor Cotane Gilbert, his wife, told the Sentinel earlier this year that helping the homeless grabbed hold of his heart early in the church's ministry. The church was originally located on Colfax, and homeless people were some of its first congregants. Throughout the years, the couple continually ministered to the homeless and worked with the Denver Rescue Mission, but wished there were services for the homeless within the city of Aurora, especially as the need rose. Our desire was always to have something in the city of Aurora. The project will be named the Dr. Felix Gilbert Unhoused Residence Village in his honor. Several miles away, another affordable housing community is taking shape with the help of Mountain View United Church, which has launched an initiative to build 10 duplex affordable community, excuse me, build a 10 duplex affordable housing community on a plot of land it owns next to the church building in the Havana Heights neighborhood. The project, dubbed Mountain View Community Homes, is being developed in partnership with Habitat for Humanity of Metro Denver. The duplexes will create 20 homes earmarked for people who earn up to 80% of the area median income, 
which is about 78000 for a family of four. Reverend Wayne Laws, Minister of Social Justice and Mission at Mountain View, said that the project got started after the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado conducted a survey that found that faith communities in the Denver metro area collectively owned more than 5,000 acres of vacant land. The Alliance formed the Congregational Land Campaign to work with faith communities to see how to use land to help address the region's housing crisis. The church became part of the effort in 2018, and after studying what would be the best use of its land, decided to create an affordable housing community. It originally had plans to include senior housing, which ultimately didn't work out. Laws said the congregation has always looked at that piece of property as a gift from God. The church was originally located on Havana Street and exchanged land with a car dealership in 1970. As part of the sale, it received two lots on Evans Avenue. It used one to build the church, but the other sat vacant. Throughout the years, the church looked for a way to use it and considered several options, but nothing really clicked until it discovered the Congregational Land Campaign, Laws said. For many projects geared toward low-income Aurorans and the homeless community, timing can be an issue, said Prosser with Aurora's Housing and Community Services Department. Location is also a big factor, especially with the need for other social services and public transit lines. In the case of Mountain View and its affordable housing plans, it's all seemed to mostly align. The church entered into a partnership with Habitat for Humanity in 2018. In October, it received initial approval by a 5-4 to four vote from the Aurora City Council to go forward with its proposal, which complies with city standards and meets the city's goal of increasing the supply of affordable homes. It will need to go before the council a second time and receive at least six votes of support for final approval. If approved, Laws said the church hopes to break ground sometime next year. The units will sell for between $250,000 and $300,000, about half of what single-family homes in the surrounding area regularly sell for. Aurora, the whole metro area, is in desperate need of affordable homes for working families, Laws said. The families who will be moving into these homes are the essential people for our neighborhood. We're talking teachers, nurses, law enforcement. At the initial meeting, many residents of the surrounding area spoke during public comment in opposition of the plan, arguing that the community was not a right fit for the neighborhood. I support affordable housing, just not this affordable housing, one neighborhood resident said. Laws said that the church was unprepared for the level of opposition it received to the project. It made what he believes was a good faith effort to reach out to people with concerns, including hosting community meetings, speaking individually with neighbors, 
and creating a website to answer frequently asked questions, but had little success in swaying people. The church heard over and over from people who said they supported the work of Habitat for Humanity and even donated to it, but didn't want a housing development in their own neighborhood. Laws was hesitant to put words in people's mouths, but he said he didn't think the concerns raised about parking spaces or other mundane concerns were the main drivers of the pushback. The things that they talked about I never thought were the real issues, he said. Chandler, the director of the Colorado Village Collaborative, said that faith communities are key to managing the strong neighborhood opposition that housing projects provoke. I really appreciate having those fights with faith communities because they are uniquely positioned to be good listeners, but they are also very, very committed to the cause, he said. The CDC partners with faith communities, people who are homeless, service providers, and others to create solutions for homelessness. It currently operates two tiny home villages and four safe outdoor spaces in Denver. It gravitated toward tiny homes because they take much less space, time, and money to build than traditional homes, but still provide people with their own personal space, something that's absent in a communal shelter. Chandler praised Mountain View for its commitment. I think if you didn't have a partner like a church on that project, they probably would have walked away from it a long time ago, Chandler said. If somebody had a for-profit bottom line, they would have walked away from the project a long time ago. But because that is an integral part of the church's mission, it was a fight they were going to have. Polis. Pandemic emergency not over if you haven't been vaccinated. By the Sentinel. Aurora. Governor Jared Polis said the nascent but increasing spread of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus is a new and flashing signal for those unvaccinated to get the shot. We now face a new threat with the Omicron variant, Polis said Thursday from a drive-in vaccination center in Aurora. Polis said that while researchers are still trying to glean details about the new variant, Experts are confident it's easily spread and that those unvaccinated are at far greater risk of severe illness than those who have complete vaccines. Polis said a fifth case of an Omicron variant infection has been identified in Colorado and that one of the cases was contracted through community infection rather than someone traveling to prone areas or having contact with someone like that. Polis joined Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman at an outdoor drive through vaccination clinic at Aurora City Hall with multiple open appointments and even the capacity of walk-in requests for vaccination. Polis appealed to people discouraged or inconvenienced by long wait times at some local pharmacies and clinics for vaccine appointments. That's why sites like this one in Aurora are so important, Polis said. 
adding that anyone from or outside of Aurora can show up even without an appointment for a vaccine. As he spoke, a steady flow of motorists came through for vaccinations. There was never a waiting line of more than four cars during the morning press conference. Kaufman said vaccination is critical, especially as the holidays approach. Help protect yourself. Help help protect your family. Help protect your co-workers. Help protect your community, Kaufman said in English and Spanish. Kaufman said that as of Thursday, about 81% of eligible residents 12 and older have taken at least one dose of a coronavirus vaccine, and that Colorado is among top states vaccinating those eligible under 12. Despite that, hospitals across the state continue to struggle against an overload of COVID-19 patients, resulting in postponed non-critical surgeries and treatments, and stressing health workers. As of Wednesday, the state reported 1,127 people hospitalized with COVID-19, of which only 176 are unvaccinated. Polis said gradually reducing numbers of people hospitalized with the virus is promising, but the pandemic is not over. Polis drew criticism from some health officials last week by saying on local and national media that the pandemic emergency is over. Wednesday, he maintained that more than a year after the pandemic first struck the state, much has changed. We have many more tools now to fight the virus, Polis said, including widespread testing, effective vaccines, stockpiles of medical supplies, and the ability to increase hospital capacity if demand overtakes availability. During the past few weeks, Polis has tendered that as an argument against the statewide mask mandate, much to the consternation of local health department officials. When pressed as to whether his comments about the emergency ending conflict with his message of urgency to get vaccinated and wear masks when inside public places, Polis said vaccination is key to managing and mitigating the pandemic. The emergency is not over for you if you haven't been vaccinated, Polis said. The Aurora Municipal Center Vaccination Clinic is open until 6 p.m. at 15151 East Alameda Parkway. Clinic hours are 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday and 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Friday through Sunday. Aurora Leaders, Way Options in Combating Youth Violence by Grant Stringer Aurora Beefing up anti-gang policing, mentorship programs, and confiscating kids' guns were all on the table Wednesday night when city officials discussed a slew of measures to combat youth violence in a special meeting of the city council. Mayor Mike Kaufman called the meeting among city council members and officials from Aurora Mental Health, the Aurora Police Department, 
Aurora Public Schools, and the city's Youth Violence Prevention Program. The meeting also included Kiara Padilla, a member of that program, and an Aurora Central High School student. The meeting comes after a spate of violence in which more than a dozen teenagers were shot and injured. That included two shootings at or near high schools. Most recently, Cherry Creek Schools has seen more rumors and threats of gun violence shared by students over social media. Gun violence involving children and teenagers has increased in recent years across the U.S., according to the Associated Press. Aurora saw 135 people, including adults, injured in shootings this year as of late November. The advocates and officials called for doubling down on measures Wednesday, such as mentoring at-risk kids, increasing mental health supports, and helping kids participate in extracurriculars. They said parents need to become more engaged in preventing everything from truancy to drug use and access to firearms. Aurora Police Department Chief Vanessa Wilson said children are accessing guns in their homes, but they're also buying guns on the street through mobile apps like Snapchat, which leaves no immediate record of interactions, she said. Wilson cited two instances so far of a parent calling police after discovering their child had a gun. The police chief has publicly called for parental involvement. The conversation about youth violence then became wrapped up in gang violence prevention during the meeting, as well as the capacity of the police department to arrest violent teenagers. It's not clear whether the recent shootings were gang-related. Wilson said the November 19th shooting that wounded three teenage students at Hinckley High School had a gang nexus. According to police affidavits, the shooting began when one teenager confronted members of a rival clique they called the Boner Boys. She said the shooting at Nome Park on November 15th which injured six teens, couldn't accurately be called gang-motivated. She said the traditional definition of gang has changed. We're now calling them groups instead of gangs, she said. Wilson and Councilmember Angela Lawson also used the term beef to describe spats between teenagers that can turn fatal when guns are involved. After questioning from City Council member Dustin Zavonik, Wilson said the department is short on gang violence prevention resources. Wilson said a total of 12 officers and a sergeant work on gang-related issues. Obviously, with a city this size, I would like to see triple that number, Wilson said. Right now, staffing is such that we're unable to. Zvonik said he wanted to see a unified effort in which prevention efforts waged by the city and nonprofit partners drew strength from boosted police capacity to identify and arrest youth. In 2018, Aurora voters defunded the Aurora Gang Reduction Impact Program after voting to end the city's red light 
ticket program. Then Chief Nick Mentz removed the AGRIP program to consolidating funds, according to Wilson. I think it was a very positive program. In terms of violence prevention, Aurora officials have already forged an alliance with the city and county of Denver to address address youth violence. In April, city officials hired Christina Amparin, the city's youth violence prevention manager. Her office has a $1 million budget, according to the Denver Post. And in 2020, prevention groups created safe zones for youth to hang out without fear of gun violence. Aurora's upcoming prevention programs, a two-day shut-in at a local charter school to carve out space for youth uh, during a New Year's celebration. Swedish Medical Center in Englewood unveils plans for Cancer Center. $25 million project seeks to centralize services by the end of the year. By Robert Tan. Swedish Medical Center, a 408-bed acute care hospital in Englewood, announced plans to build a new cancer treatment center intended to open by the end of 2022. The hospital has been doing pre-construction work since April, according to hospital spokesperson Alyssa Parker, with construction expected to begin in January. This effort to bring together all of the components we have already built in our fight against cancer into a singular, singular dedicated space, said Ryan Tobin, President and Chief Executive Officer of Swedish Medical Center in a news release. The new facility, dubbed a Cancer Pavilion, is set to centralize the various oncology services of the hospital's Sarah Cannon Cancer Institute by connecting two of its East Hampton Avenue medical office buildings. The project is is estimated to cost $25 million, with the hospital securing funding from various partners, including HCA Healthcare and Sarah Cannon, as well as from its facility operating budget, according to Parker. The new space will house oncology physician offices and comprehensive patient support services, as well as a new grand entryway, redesigned landscaping, and outdoor spaces for patients. In addition to making care more convenient, we want to make our space healing, Tobin said in his statement. We understand that cancer treatment can be stressful and frightening. We are taking every possible measure to create a peaceful, serene environment for our patients. The hospital serves about 2,000 cancer patients each year, according to Parker, with Sarah Cannon providing services since 2012. Parker, in an email to Colorado Community Media, said the new space could allow the hospital to care for even more patients. While some of the project involves reconfiguring existing services, we expect the streamlined approach to enrich the patient experience, enhance provider satisfaction, and ultimately expand the number of patients 
for which we can provide care, she said. Littleton saw power outages collapse tennis bubble as high wind battered city. More than 2,000 people lost power, according to Excel Energy, by Robert Tan. As winds of up to 80 miles per hour battered Denver and the Front Range, the city of Littleton experienced multiple power outages as well as the collapse of the outdoor tennis bubble at the Littleton Golf and Tennis Court off of Federal Boulevard. More than 2,000 people lost power, according to an XL Energy dashboard, with 38 separate outages as of 2 p.m. Wednesday. South Metro Fire said in a tweet that it responded to several calls of fallen trees and electrical lines in the Littleton area, but no, but so far reported no injuries. The department urged people to avoid approaching, driving, or walking over fallen power lines. And earlier in the morning, the tennis bubble that covers a full-size court at Littleton's Golf and Tennis Center experienced substantial damage to its structure, according to Becky Grubb, a spokesperson for South Suburban Parks and Recreation. No injuries occurred, but the bubble will be closed indefinitely until further investigation is done to assess the damage, Grubb said in an email to Colorado Community Media. A red flag warning and high wind warning were in effect in the city from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., according to the National Weather Service. I-25 Express Lanes Open South of Castle Rock by Mark Hardin The Interstate 25 South Gap Express Lanes between Castle Rock and El Paso County opened early December 10th, the centerpiece of a major highway project on the route connecting Metro Denver and Colorado Springs. The lanes opened on the same day that the first measurable snowfall of the season blanketed parts of the Front Range. There is one new express lane in each direction on I-25 between Castle Rock and Monument, the Colorado Department of Transportation said in a statement. Tolls are currently being waived as the project opened the lanes far ahead of schedule. The new lanes span 14 miles of the 18-mile South Gap Widening Project. Thank you for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Mary Ann.